All right, hey, once you've met someone, you can go ahead and take a seat. Just want to say welcome. Uh, my name is Josiah. If this is your first time here, we're so glad you're here. I just want to say welcome. I'd love to meet you after. If this is your first time, just say what's up. Uh, but we're in the Gospel of Mark. So do me a favor. Turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along. Uh, but Mark chapter 8 is where we'll be at. Just want to say, as they're passing out Bibles, um, hope you had a great 4th of July and a great time with your family. Um, missed you guys last week. My wife and I were in California. Um, I went to a pastor's conference at my old home church from back in the day and got to see family, which was really nice. I haven't been home in two years. And so it was nice to go home. It was nice to see my family. Uh, for them, for all the grandparents, they just wanted the grandbaby, right? Um, but it's really nice. It's really fun just to be home. Um, and also, I don't know if you guys, but we, we had a, on the 4th of July, we actually had like a booth at this Deerfield Beach 4th of July festival. And uh, a lot of you served at that. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for serving at that. Um, we got to be there all day during this like festival thing and have a booth and meet people in our community and pray with some people and talk to some people. So if you came out and served, just thank you. And thank you for just making that happen. Thank you for giving so we can do things like that. Just want to say thank you. It's really cool. Um, so that was fun. Fourth of July Festival. Heard some cool stories from that. Um, I want to share this actually. Uh, this is interesting. I, I realized last night I went downstairs and just late. Um, just went downstairs, was praying, and it hit me that yesterday was July 7th, and two years ago, uh, July 7th, 2016, is when we had our first prayer meeting for this church. Um, so the first prayer meeting was at our house. It was July 7th, 2016, and here we are two years later. Um, just thinking back to that first prayer, yeah, give God credit and glory for that. So that was neat, just looking back, kind of praying, going, God, should we do this? And um, I was reading through my journal, just like, what did, I, what did we talk about? What did we pray about? And the two words that we wrote down was rest and build. And I remember talking to my wife um, after the prayer meeting, like, what did the Lord show you? And she's like, that we need to rest, but that we also need to build. Even though that seems contradictory, it's not. Uh, but we need to rest and build. And I'm like, that's what I got. And those are the two words. So we wrote that down, and just neat. It's been two years since then, so God is so good and, and blows us away. Um, again, Mark chapter 8. Uh, also, this weekend right now is community group weekend. All that means is after service, we're going to end kind of early, I think, maybe. We'll see. Um, but we'll give you guys some time to sign up for community groups. Um, we love, this is like kind of the backbone of our church. Um, we don't have a midweek service. We want to connect in groups. Acts 2.46 says they met in the temple and house to house. And so that's kind of our hope for community groups. So um, we'll talk more about that at the end, but we'll have laptops. You can sign up online. Our leader will get emailed. They'll contact you, but we'll talk about that more towards the end. So Mark chapter 8, uh, we're basically taking the year to go through the gospel of Mark, and we're just slowing down, we're not in a rush, and we're focusing on the life and ministry of Jesus, and who he is, and what he did, and what he claimed, and here's what I love about Mark. Mark is the first gospel written, it's the first gospel penned, uh, as I mentioned many times, that Mark's gospel is kind of Peter's gospel. Uh, an early church father named Eusebius told us that Mark penned really from sitting down and studying under Peter, so it's like Peter's gospel, and that's kind of his insight, but Mark is showing us the real Jesus. There's a lot of rumors about who Jesus is, a lot of speculation back then, even today. And Mark is just trying to clarify who Jesus is, what he did, what he came to do. And here's what I love about Mark's gospel. And here's what I love about the gospels. The more I read the gospels, the more I see how controversial Jesus is. I mean, if you think about this, Jesus literally offends everyone. In our text today, he's going to call out the Pharisees, and he's going to call out Herod. And so there's two extremely different groups of people. 
And there's something that I, I have to, that maybe it frustrates us at first, but I, I begin to fall in love with it, is there's not a group of people, there's not a worldview that, in a sense, Jesus offend, doesn't offend. Because you think about it, he's going to challenge every worldview. He's going to challenge maybe the Pharisee, self-righteous, religious worldview. He's going to challenge the Herod, liberal worldview. He challenges everyone. And I appreciate this, because if there is a God, and obviously I believe there is, but there's no way God is always going to agree with me and what I think is best, or what I think is right, or what I think is wrong, or what this person thinks is best. Sooner or later, us and God are going to disagree on some things. Sooner or later, we're going to realize it's not what I think and what my way or my will, here's what I think is best. God is going to disagree with everyone in every category, and we all have to come to the conclusion, either I surrender and submit what I think or to what God says. And Mark is just trying to show us who the real Jesus is in that light. And last week, uh, a guy named Steve Mayo, Steve Mayo filled in and taught for me and did a great job. I got to listen to that. And uh, we, he talked about a Syrophoenician woman who just came in seeking healing for her daughter. He talked about the deaf mute man seeking healing for himself. We, we looked at just this desperate need for Jesus. And today, here's what we're going to look at. Today, we're going to study the, the feeding of the 4,000. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago, in Mark chapter 6, we studied the feeding of the 5,000, and two different stories. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this. So I'm going to be honest, I've kind of had like this cynical thought, like, oh, Jesus fed 5,000 last time, now he only fed 4,000. I almost have like, like, oh, it's getting weaker. Like, no, that's not the point. Um, we're actually, gonna, and, you're, and I know even when I was studying this, it's almost like, well, how do you teach a very similar story that is yet different by just some numbers. And there's some new insights here, and there's some new conversations happening between the disciples and the Pharisees. And there's so much here. And so what we're going to look at today, and the title today is simply this, you still don't get it, do you? What Jesus is going to say to the disciples, after feeding the 5,000, now the 4,000, he's going to look at them in verse 21 and says, you still don't get it, do you? You're still missing the point. I actually like, Googled this phrase, you still don't get it, do you? And this video uh, came up of all these, there's so many movies out there. It just it made me laugh. Like nine minutes worth of movies where just people turn and be like, you still don't get it, do you? Like, you still don't get it. It's just, and so I had to write that down. But the idea is that Jesus is saying, you still don't get it. After all of this time, after spending all this time with me, you still don't get it, do you? And honestly, this is, I can, I can laugh. I literally read Mark 8, verse 1 through 21, and there's like three different times I laughed out loud about the disciples' reaction to Jesus. I mean, because you kind of just see their dopiness. But I realize that is me. The things they say, the questions they ask, the things they forget. Like, we can laugh and mock and belittle them, but to be honest, that is so us. And so I just want to read Mark 8, verse 1 through 21, and then we'll, we'll pray and look this more in depth. So Mark chapter 8, uh, let's read it. It says, in those days... The multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have, no, uh, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and broke them and, and gave them to his disciples to set before them, and they set them before the multitude. Sounds like a little deja vu to me. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to them also before them, or he set them also before them, verse 8, so they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples, and he came to the region of Dalmanithua. 
Verse 11, then the Pharisees came out and they began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him because the feeding of the 4,000 wasn't enough. But he sighed, listen to this, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side now the disciples had forgotten to take the bread that they just had, the seven baskets. They'd forgotten to take the bread. And they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? <laughs> I don't know, I just, they're so, I love these guys. Verse 17, but Jesus being aware of it said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you don't understand? And maybe some of you are like, I don't understand. This is, I had to like really chew over that last verse, verse 21. How is it you don't understand? And the question obviously is understand what? Understand what? And, and we're going to talk about that, so let's just pray. <laughs> Father, I just thank you again for this time we get to, to read your word, to slow down, to look at this, God. And I think we laugh, and I think I laugh because my heart is so like this, God. I'm so quick and prone to forget. And Lord, I ask that you just remind us, remind us, God, of everything. The fact that you have to even tell us and remind us of what you've done, God. Let us just remember. Let us walk in our present circumstances, remembering the past faithfulness that you've shown us. And so, Lord, I just thank you again for this time. I ask that you'd be here and speak and move in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, if, have you ever had that feeling of deja vu? Like that deja vu feeling? It, it's the weirdest feeling in the word, in the world. I, I've tried to like read about it and study it and look like like look into it, just Google it and read some articles. But really it's hard to explain that deja vu feeling. And if you've ever had that moment where like the circumstances are so clear, like you're like, this happened before. Like I've been here. All right. The word deja vu, it comes from this French word already seen. All right. And there's the guy it came from that word because the guy who first studied this and he wanted to look at it from a scientific approach. But it's a very interesting feeling because my deja vu moments, I don't I haven't had like many like recently, but I've had many throughout my life. And my deja vu moments, if you've ever had them, it's like the weirdest details. Like I'll be in a room and I hear a baby crying, then a plate drops, my wife sneezes, and I'm like, I've been here before. <laughs> and I'll look at her, I'll look over at her and be like, deja vu right now. She's like, I don't care. Like, because like, it's funny how like when deja vu moments happen, it's super exciting to, to the person it's happening to. It's like, oh my gosh, like I've never been in this place. I've never met this person and I've met this person and I've never been. There. And it's so weird how like it works. And you try to tell someone like I'm having a deja vu moment and you tell them the details. I'm like, that's a really boring deja vu moment. It's never very exciting. And, and this is what's happening in Mark 8. Because I want you to think about this. There's crowds. They're hungry. They're listening to Jesus teach and preach. Jesus has compassion for them. He's like, we should do something about this. And the disciples are like, what should we do? And I wonder if it's just that deja vu moment for them. Like, we just read this. Now, yes, for us, it's just minutes in a sense. Like, we read this a couple chapters ago, but it's been days, weeks, months since this has happened. 
And for them, they're like kind of maybe, maybe they remembered this moment, maybe they forgot, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at that more. But they're having this deja vu moment where there's multitudes of people, and Jesus is like, I want to feed them. And here's kind of, when I was just reading through this text and trying to look for that steady thread, uh, here's what I see. I just kind of see bread throughout this text, maybe because I'm hungry. I don't know, but I was reading this, and you kind of see this steady thread of just Jesus providing food. Do you see the disciples forget the food? You see Jesus say, beware of the leaven, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And then you say, like, is it because of the food? <laughs> and Jesus like, do you still not get it? And so here's how we're going to, like, look at this text. Because, again, you could say we studied a very similar text. Can anything new come from this? And yes, verse 1 through 10 in, in Mark 8, even though it's very similar, there's still some different key things happening during and after. And so I want to look at this. So here's kind of the three points, I guess, or the way I try to outline this just to make it simple to remember. Uh, But number one, we're going to see verse one through 10. We're going to see bread that satisfies, bread that satisfies. In verse 11 through 15, we're going to see bread that corrupts, really the yeast, but bread that corrupts. And then we're going to see lastly, bread isn't the point, all right? Like Josiah, those are your points. I know, but it's not the point. And this is interesting to me. Bread isn't the point, and Jesus has to remind them this is not the point. The, the whole sermon is not about bread. There's something much deeper here. But we see Jesus offers a bread that satisfies, and then the, the, the Pharisees, again, they have a bread that corrupts, and then bread isn't the point. All right, so let's just look at this again. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 1. Read with me the first point, bread that satisfies. In, in those days, the multitudes, verse 1, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some have, have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, it's so interesting, because they just relived this before. They go, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? All right, we see a bread that satisfies. All right, I have to point this out because if you were with us, and it's okay if you missed this, but in Mark 6, we saw the feeding of 5,000 men. So that means the men, there's probably their families there, maybe 10 to 20,000, some people say, that, that Jesus fed that day. And if you remember, Jesus kind of got mad or upset with the disciples because he fed all these people and they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand what the whole point of the bread was. And you can read that back in Mark chapter 6. And here we are again, we're living the same scenario and they still don't get it. And there's something we just have to point out because this is something I see within the church, I see within my life. They were around Jesus, but they still missed the point. And what we see so often in the church is proximity to Jesus and proximity to the church does not mean intimacy with Jesus. And that is something that, that terrifies me. Just because we're around Jesus, around the church, around churchy things, just because we're around him all the time doesn't mean we get it. Doesn't mean we follow it. Doesn't mean there's this closeness and, and oh, Jesus, I see what you're doing there. There's so many lessons, I believe, in my life that I've missed out on. I've been close to it, but I haven't really been aware of what's happening. Proximity doesn't mean intimacy. So what is this trying to show us? What are some things here? Let me just point out really quick, there's some similarities between the stories, and there's also some differences. So similarities between Mark 8 and differences in Mark 8 and Mark chapter 6. So let's look at the similarities really quick. Uh, The miracles occurred in a desolate place. These are similarities. The crowds are needy. That's us. (laughs) Jesus is moved with compassion. Uh, I don't know if we, did we correct this point? Jesus has a conversation with his disciples about it. The disciples have some sort of question or doubt. And then Jesus turns little to feed thousands. I mean, this is obviously very similar. 
There's so many similarities, but there's some differences. Because there are those who'd be like, maybe Mark just had like a hiccup and wrote the same story. No, obviously not, but there's some differences. Here's the differences. The amount of people is different, 4,000 versus 5,000. The amount of food is different, the seven versus the five. And the amount of leftovers is different, the 12 baskets versus seven baskets. Now, here's why this is important. There's also another big difference. Here's the biggest difference. Here in Mark chapter eight, Jesus is feeding 4,000 plus Gentiles. And this is a big difference. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 plus Jews around the Sea of Galilee. Last week, we were told in Ukraine back in Mark 7 that Jesus was in the region of Decapolis. Decapolis meant 10, like 10 cities. So Jesus in the Decapolis was Gentile cities. Jesus is here in Gentile territory, and he's feeding now 4,000 Gentiles. And this is so interesting. Now, I have to point this out in verse 4. They're like, where can we get bread? Here's two thoughts about the disciples. Like, why didn't they say, Jesus, do the bread thing again? Why didn't, they, why didn't they say that? Like, Jesus, we've just seen you do this before. Like, do your whole bread trick. Why didn't they bring that up? Why, why did they go, I don't know where there's bread? There's either two thoughts, and we'll look at both. One is that maybe they forgot. One is that maybe they really just didn't keep, keep it in mind. They didn't think Jesus could do it again. Another thought is that the disciples didn't bring it up on purpose. There are many scholars who believe the disciples didn't want Jesus to feed the thousands here. That's why even though he already did this, they're kind of acting, oh, what can we do? Because here, keep this in mind, understand, for the Jews, the Gentiles, whether it's Samaritans, half-breeds, or whether it's the Romans who took over their land and, and they're ruining their traditions or they're bringing in pagan gods, they're worshiping the God of Baal, like whatever it is, for, for the Jews, they're going, these Gentiles are dogs. Jesus did not come, the Messiah, if G, the Messiah is for Jews, they're for us, they're not for Gentiles, he's not for the Gentile people. See, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus has him sit down and we see that he's the true shepherd of Israel. And here in Mark chapter 8, we're seeing that he's the true shepherd of the world. And this is frustrating to the disciples, it seems. There are many who believe that this is like, they didn't want Jesus to step in and do something. And I love that we see the side of Jesus, that Jesus cuts across all races, all boundaries, all limits, all social class, that Jesus says, no, I'm not just the Messiah for the Jews, I'm the Messiah for the world. And we really see like a new introduction of Jesus now. I'm not just going to feed five. The same thing I'm doing and offering for the Jews, I'm also Messiah for the world. I'm also Messiah for the Gentiles. And this is what we see about our God. And I'm so thankful. We serve a God who has a heart, obviously, for the world. That Jesus, the Messiah, the Old Testament, this Jewish Messiah is not just a Jewish Savior. He's, he's a Savior for everyone. And here's what I love about Jesus. How did he transcend culture or race or diversity? How did he transcend and get past through all of this? He spoke a certain language, and the language was food. Now, I speak food. Does anyone else speak food? I speak food in here. I love, I, I love this about Jesus, and I love this about food. Um, doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, if you're weird, if you're normal, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Everyone gets hungry. Everyone can get food. Like, I can just be in a different country and, like, be eating, my mouth is full, like, mm -mm, and, like, point, like, mm, and they get what I'm saying, like, I want that. They're like, yeah, here you go. Like, we speak food. Food is something we all speak, and Jesus speaks food. This is how, really, he, he crosses the, the lines, you could say, into the Gentile territory and says, I'm going to feed and help people, yes, my Jewish people, but I'm also going to feed my Gentile friends. And, and this would, again, might have upset the disciples. It might have been still new to them. Do you, remember, do you remember, actually, there's a story in the New Testament, you're like, Josiah, you're reaching here. No. Do you remember the New Testament, Peter wouldn't eat with Gentiles? And Paul actually rebukes Peter and says, Peter, you should be eating with Gentiles. This is the gospel. Jesus ate with Gentiles. And so we actually see this being communicated even in the New Testament later on. So what I want to point out is Jesus is the Savior of not just Jews, but of Gentiles. And thank God for that. And he speaks the language food to these people. And they come to him in verse 4. And here's the other option. Remember that I said the other option? 
Look at verse 4 again. What does it say? It says in verse 4, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? The other option is that it implies they just honestly forgot. I wrote it out this way, that they weren't expecting anything miraculous to come from Jesus again. How often do we, do I, have this attitude that Jesus might have done something before, but not again? Like, sometimes I think, can Jesus do the same thing twice? Like, I know you provided for me this one time, but can you do it again, right? And for some reason, we, like, doubt that, like, can he do it? He did it once. I think that's it. I hit my limit. Crazy 5,000 people miracle. That's my limit. But it's like, no, he does it again. But it seems that they're quick to either forget or apply what they've known in the past to their present circumstances. And really, I think that spiritual forgetting is that we forget to apply to our present circumstances how faithful God has been in the past. And this is what they forgot this is what, they, listen, our hearts are prone to forget. We are prone to have spiritual amnesia. You know, whenever we get in the kind of like a bind, I am prone to forget how faithful God has been in the past. So when I bust out my journal yesterday, I had to reread some stories of just how God has been so faithful. And I had to remind myself, because I still get into certain moments where I go, God, but this just happened. There are certain things that happen. I go, I don't know if you can come through again. And why do I think that? Why is that my first conclusion? Why is my first thought, can God do the same thing twice? Like, why is that my, why is my first inclination to doubt? Why is my first inclination to do what verse 4 says and says, can anything happen here in the wilderness? I'm in the wilderness again. Can you do it again, God? You know, I had to reread some stories of how faithful God has been. If you haven't done this, if you haven't written down God just faithfulness in your lives, do it. I have like a white or like a brown moleskin journal. I don't know, maybe it's like a white guy thing. But I have like a uh, brown moleskin journal where I like try to write down like prayers that God has answered or whatever. I try to look at it and just remember how faithful God has been. And I, I, I have to bust this out sometimes. Go, oh God, you've been so faithful. How dare I, in this moment, at this time, forget? I mean, there's been such unique times where we've been financially in a, in a difficult place. And this hasn't happened. I had to reread a story recently of financially, we're kind of going through it. And this doesn't happen all the time. And someone came up to us and said, I have some money for you. It's $1,000. And they're like, don't you dare say thank you. You just praise Jesus alone privately. And I just, I have to be obedient and give you this. And I was like, what? And that's about six years ago. And like, I forgot that story and I had to reread that and go, God, you're so faithful. Because like, we still enter those wildernesses. We still have those and we go, but he can't do it again. He, can't, he maybe fit five, that, he can't do this again. And maybe the heart of the disciples was more one of forgetting. And honestly, I think the Bible does this. And maybe if you've been with me, uh, been with us for church for six months now, you kind of realize a lot of the times we're just trying to remind we're trying to remind you, stir things we already know, but bring it into the forefront of our mind. This was what Peter did. I love this verse. It's in 2 Peter 1.12. Let me read it to you really quick. In 2 Peter 1.12, it says, For this reason, Peter writes, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. He's like, I'm not going to be negligent to remind, even though you know these things, even though you're established in these things, I'm still going to remind you of them. And I feel like that's what the gospel, when we like are doing community groups or small or whatever we might be doing, I really feel like a big part of it is we're just reminding each other of things we already know, but just bring it to the forefront of our mind. Like we have doubts, we have questions, we have fears, and we know God is good, we know God is faithful, but we need to be told that still. Like every day I need to hear the gospel, every day I need to preach the gospel to myself, have others preach the gospel to me. I need to remind myself constantly that God is faithful. Here's what we do. In spite of seeing the Lord work in our past, we still question if he can handle our present. And why do we do that? In spite of seeing the Lord work in our past, we, we still question, can he still meet our needs today? And the answer is yes, of course. Now, I don't know if you have this kind of view of God. Um, my son 
is in this stage of life, and I think he'll be in this for a long time because I'm still in this stage of life, where he just loves and wants sugar. All right, like that's all he wants right now. Like he wakes up in the morning, he's just like, he wants pancakes with sugar or he wants like ice cream, right? Like he just wants like, he's like, yeah, let's have ice cream. It's 8 a.m. It's a great idea. Um, that's just him, right? And a lot of times like when we're out or we're traveling or whatever we're doing, like I'll like literally stand there and I'll have my arms folded. He's like, kind of like, he's like sugar. He'll literally say sugar. It's like, that I means sweet. He'll just say that and I'll have my arms folded as if like, no. no sh- and I, I don't know if you have this image of God of kind of like your, his arms folded and just saying no, like, no. I don't know what, how we view God or think of God sometimes. Sometimes I think I view prayers like, are we begging God to give us what we want? I love what this guy named Martin Luther said. He, he said it this way. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his willingness. And, and I think that we got to remember that God is so willing. He's not standing there with his arms folded and angry and mad. It's not that he wants to give us sugar, but he wants to give us what's good for us. He's willing. He, he's like longing to give us what's good for us. He's not reluctant towards that. He's looking forward to giving that to us. You see, what I see here in Mark chapter 8, even though this is a similar story to Mark 6, even though there seems to be cer- similar circumstances, God is reminding them, hey, I provided for you once. I'm still going to provide for you. You know, in verse 8, it says, they ate and were filled. I just had to circle that. They ate and were filled. And I have to remind myself that Jesus will fill us. He will satisfy us. He will meet our needs. And it's not this, this like vain thing. Like He really will fill us. Jesus offers to us a bread that satisfies. That's why in John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you hunger, come eat of me. Because a lot of times we are hungry and we think, if I can fill it with sex, if I can fill it with power, if I can fill it with this, this sort of shallow thing or this relationship, if I can just eat of this, then I'll be satisfied. And we're actually placing weight on something that could never satisfy us. It will fail us. It will hurt the other person. It will hurt us in the process. And Jesus is like, eat of me. You're still trying to eat from other sources. You're trying to find satisfaction from other sources, but you'll eat of me. You'll never hunger again. I will satisfy those deep cravings. And see, we, we see from Jesus a hunger that satisfies. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so th- and I need to be reminded of this. Even though I read Mark 6 a few weeks ago, I still need to keep reading it. <laughs> I still need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. So we see bread that satisfies. Now, Jesus gets in this boat. And he's going to Dalmanutha. And as he gets off the boat, he's greeted by the Pharisees. And let's read verse 11. We're going to see number two. We're going to see a bread that corrupts. A bread that corrupts. Look at verse 11. Then the Pharisees come out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. What's happening here? They go to Jesus and say, Jesus, give us a sign. What sign has Jesus not given them? right? Like he just fed 4,000. You can read back in Mark. He healed a leper. He touches the leper. He heals lame people that can't walk. Uh, he's, he's actually opening the blind's eyes. He's doing so many things. They go, give us a sign in the clouds. We want to see a sign in the stars. We want to see a sign in the heaven. And that was like an Old Testament prophetic term. Show us something up there. Show us that you're a true prophet. And it says they're testing him. And that word test, testing, it's really done in this malicious kind of way. This, the point is, they're not really wanting an answer from Jesus. They're not trying to confirm their beliefs about Jesus. They really wanted to confirm that he wasn't from God. I mean, they were looking for Jesus to do something and be like, ah, oh, he's doing that through the power of Satan. That's not real. They, he, they wanted him to do something. Now, it's not a matter of, of questioning God. It's a matter of they're just testing him. And here's what Jesus sees. Jesus sees their motives. He sees their intents he, of their hearts. He knows I could give you a sign from heaven and you're still not going to believe. You see, so often people try to make Christianity like it's an evidence problem. There's not enough evidence. When in reality, it's probably more of a faith problem. 
people like, if there's just enough evidence, then I would believe. I don't know if you ever sat with someone and you've maybe gone through like arguments for the resurrection or arguments for why the Bible is unique or the word of God or you've looked at, pro- or you've looked at something very specific. It's not going to change the heart. I mean, we can sit down with someone all day and pre- present the evidence in front of them, but the issue is not an intellectual problem. There's this moral heart problem happening. There's something much deeper. The real, the real issue is, I don't want to believe this because if I had believed this, that might mean I surrender my life to Jesus. That might mean it's no longer my will. That means I'm submitting my will for his will. That's a fearful thought. That might mean I have to forgive people I don't want to forgive. That might mean I have to give up something I don't want to give up. It's not an evidence problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not like show us a sign, then we'll believe. That wouldn't have changed anything. But for them, it's really a, a surrender problem. Well, that means we have to follow you, not our traditions of men that we talked about in chapter 7. We have to follow you and what you— Like, they didn't want to give up control. And honestly, can we agree that most of the time we're talking to people, it's not an evidence problem or intellectual problem. It's that we don't want to give up control. I don't want to have him have control of my life. I don't want him to—because then what he says goes, and it's, I'm no longer God of my life. Now he's God of my life. Actually, I love what one guy said. His name is Tim Chaddock. He, he said it this way. He says, once we have plenty of evidence, our demand for more proof is simply a way to avoid commitment. See, once we have plenty of evidence and we go, I want more, it's just a way to avoid commitment. They're ridding themselves of responsibility. Actually, what they're doing, and I, I want you to see this, is they're almost putting the blame on Jesus. Well, Jesus, if you would do something, then I'd believe. You haven't done enough, Jesus. And really, this kind of attitude is what we can do so often. Like, Jesus, I would believe you. I would believe in you. I would trust you if you did more. If you did this, then I would believe. And what we're trying to do is take the blame off us and put it the blame on Jesus. Well, you're not doing enough for me, Jesus. God, if, you're, if you really cared, you would do this, and then I would believe. And we're really blame shifting. We're trying to put the blame on God as if God's holding back, as if God's not doing enough. And if he were to step up his game, then I would step up my game. But that's really not the issue. It's this moral, it's this hard thing. See, another miracle won't provide faith in those who made up their mind. And I love this. This is so interesting. Um, Jesus is like, I'm not going to give you a sign. It's really interesting. When Jesus was on the cross and he was hanging there, do you guys remember the interaction he's having with the crowd? The, the crowd is mocking Jesus, belittling Jesus. And they said what? They said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And if you guys remember in Matthew and in Luke and the different gospels, they actually said something really specific. They said, if you get down from the cross, then we will believe. If you get down from the cross, then we will believe. That's the sign they wanted. For them, the sign was God will intervene right now, stop this pain, stop this suffering. He'll intervene. He'll, he'll get down from the cross and then we'll believe. And really the power of the cross, the power of Jesus is not seen by him getting down. The power of the cross is by him staying up there. Like that's how we see the power of, of Jesus. It would have been actually easier for him to get down. It would have been a lot easier. That's the sign they want, and just like, I'm going to give you a greater sign. I'm going to stay up here. I'm going to die and bleed for the sins of the world. I'm also going to come up, and you're going to see me again. You see, he gave him Jesus. Remember, there's another time they came to him, and they say, I'll give us a sign, and Jesus says, there's no sign I'll give you except the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, speaking of his resurrection. Jonah, if you guys remember, was swallowed by that great fish. He's there for three days, three nights, spat out. Jesus goes, see Jonah? Jonah, remember Jonah in the Old Testament? That's me. <laughs> that speaks of the resurrection. People go, where's the resurrection in the Old Testament about Jesus? I'm like, Jonah. Man, Jonah was as good as dead in that fish's belly for three days and three nights. Comes out, right? He comes out three days later. And Jesus goes, that's the sign I'll give you is the resurrection. He's given us plenty of signs. It's not, it's not an intellectual problem. It's not a proof problem. It's not an educational thing. It's really, I don't want to give up control yet. I don't want to give up my, my surrender yet. I still like me being in charge. And, and, and here's the thing. And I think this is what we all, we all do. I do this. 
I assume that I'm a better master than Jesus. I assume that I'm, I know what's better for me. I assume I know what I like and I can, I can choose the direction of my life and I will satisfy me more than Jesus will. For some reason, again, we have this idea that Jesus will be a cruel master who will be like, you get saved. You're like, I'm all in, Jesus. And he's like, go to the desert. And you're like, Ugh. like I don't know if we like, assume just the worst about that or, or what our mind might take, but we assume, that he's, we assume that he's not a good master. And yet we realize time and time again, whoever finds Jesus, whoever experiences Jesus, said, Jesus, I give you control. I give you complete control. You see this deep satisfaction like never before. See, here's what I want us to see. They wanted a sign, but they didn't really want a sign. Jesus gave them plenty. And, and let's even just consider this really quick, by the way. So Jesus has this interaction with the disciples. I love what happens next in verse 13 and 14. They get back in the boat. And if you notice the disciples' interactions, they get back in the boat. They forgot the seven large baskets. They only have one loaf of bread on the boat. They're like, oh my gosh, I forgot the bread. Peter's like, Thomas, I thought you had it. He's like, I thought, I thought, I don't know, I thought Bartholomew had it, right? They're like arguing, like, like they forgot these, and these seven baskets actually refers to like a large, remember the, it says in, in the book of Acts, uh, Saul, who became Paul, was put in a basket? It's the same word. It's a very large basket. It's like a huge basket, seven, seven baskets. And they're like, we forgot all the bread, like the miracle bread. We forgot it. We have one loaf. And so they're like, oh no. And then Jesus sees this as like a teaching opportunity. And he's like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. They're like, oh no, what happened? Like, did we, as Jesus knows, we forgot the bread. Like, that's their conclusion. And, and it, it's funny to me, because I read this, it almost sounds like, to the disciples, like, it's not like Jesus just has, like, Bible Tourette's. He's like, beware of the leaven in the Pharisees. Like, oh, what does it mean? Like, he, he's trying to capitalize on something. So let's look at that phrase again in verse 15. He says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, this is, I feel like we have to stop and focus on this, because this is kind of a big point. When Jesus says, beware of something, probably beware of, of that thing. So it goes, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now let's talk about leaven, because I don't really know a lot about leaven, so I had to like research it and look a lot into it, look into it. But leaven was like an older word for the word yeast for them. They understood how yeast or leaven worked in certain ways back then. Today we know new things. We know that yeast is like a living cell, and I, and I forget how it works, but it like digests uh, certain things, and it, it converts things into to alcohol and into carbon dioxide, and that's why the bread spreads. But here's what they knew about leaven. And they'd actually take a little piece of dough from the previous lump, let it like ferment for a little bit, put it in new bread, and it would leaven the bread. And some things they knew about yeast or leaven that I'll just throw up here for you, uh, they knew that yeast, in a sense for them, it was unseen. Like, you didn't really see it. Like you had the dough, but you, and you put it in the new batch, but you didn't really see the yeast to their, their eye. It was unseen. It would spread rapidly. I mean, it would just grow so fast. It would just expand the bread very fast. And then it sucks the sweetness out. A lot of times it can be like sour, like sourdough bread. Uh, but it sucks the sweetness out. It just like, sucks the sugars out if it's left in for too long. And so here's what they know about yeast or leaven. And Jesus is like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now let's look at this. It's unseen. It spreads rapidly. It sucks sweetness out. Jesus in the scriptures used this many times. Leaven or yeast as a picture of sin. He's saying, beware of the sin, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What does that mean? Let's look at what they know. Jesus says, this leaven is like sin, the Pharisee sin. It's unseen. You might not see it. It's going to spread rapidly, and it's going to suck the sweetness out. So let's think about that. Uh, It's unseen. Many times, their sin, and think Pharisees right now, their sins weren't very seen. They weren't really public. Think about Pharisees. Think about, like, the religious community. Their good works were seen. They were dressed up nice and clean. But, and they would give. They would go to church. They would do all these things outwardly. And Jesus is trying to say, your sin isn't outward. Your sin's internal. It's on the inside. And he's trying to constantly show them, we might not see your sin, but it's there. 
And I, I think that we got to see this. Like, sin is there in all of us. Sin is there in all of us. It's not always seen. Sin's in me. This is a constant thing where we have to, like, talk about, like, God, purge. Like, get rid, remove the lever. Purge this. Get rid of it. Like, because why? Because it spreads rapidly. Like, I don't know if you, like, again, yeast or leaven, it spreads very rapidly, but sin spreads really rapidly. It's not like we can have sin in an area of our life in only one area. Like, okay, I'll, my sin just, just kept to this corner. Like, it's going to spread into every area of our life. Like, sin is like gangrene. It'll just, like, take over and spread rapidly. It's funny how sin can spread rapidly in a person individually. It starts off unseen with a thought, maybe a motive, Maybe that motive begins, they begin to daydream about that more and more. It turns to this bigger thing until they act upon it. And you see that sin is unseen. It spreads really rapidly. Sin can spread rapidly even within a church or group of people. You think about how it's like one person starting like maybe like a little gospel over here and just starts to spread and spread and spread and it just shifts the whole culture. But sin, yeast, it spreads rapidly. We see that just like yeast would spread rapidly, sin spreads so rapidly. It starts off really small, starts off unseen, People might not never know it's there, but it's there, and it spreads, and it spreads fast. And this is interesting. It sucks the sweetness out. And if you've noticed, I feel like I've noticed, maybe you've noticed, um, sin can really take the joy out of a lot of things. And it's really sad to me how, like, you can see a good marriage even, but then someone has a thought, and they play with that thought, and they act in that thought, and then they start daydreaming or fantasizing, and that love and that contentment in that marriage, you go, where is it going? What's happening right now? And it's sucking the sweetness out of that marriage. Let's just, let's just be honest. Let's talk about some of those things. Let's talk about how maybe like in different ways sin can suck this. You're enjoying something in life. Maybe it's just even like food, but it becomes like an eye. It's just you're, you're focusing and focusing and it just becomes, it grows and grows and grows. And it can suck this week. You can't enjoy being with people anymore. You can't enjoy being around people. It's just interesting how sin can just suck the joy and life out of people. And Jesus like, beware of the Pharisees. Listen, their sin might not be public. It might not be visible, but it's there. It's going to spread and it spreads rapidly and it's going to suck the joy out of you. And if you guys have ever, ever noticed, religion and religious people, religious cultures can just suck the joy out of you. Because it's no longer intimacy with God and enjoying God. It is that you must and you need to and you ought to do these things rather than we get to. Rather than we get to enjoy him, rather than we get to read about Jesus, we get to enjoy it, we get to sing to Jesus. It's like you have to sing to Jesus. You need to sing to Jesus. You ought to sing to Jesus. And it turns that joyful relationship into this heavy burden. And Jesus is like, beware of this. Beware of this religious culture. It'll suck the life out of you. But what's interesting, we'll move on. He's like, beware of the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven of Herod. Now, let's talk about Herod. Remember Herod Antipas and he beheaded John the Baptist? Herod is a guy, basically, who speaks of self-indulgence. It's the opposite. It's not self-righteous. It's like, I want, I want now. Bring it to me. Give it to me. He's just a self-indulgent kind of guy, a narcissistic man. If you read about Herod or read about the Herod family, and even in Jesus' day, this would be known, very self-absorbed. All about me, what I want, my needs. I don't care what you say. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me how to act. I'm going to do my own thing, and it's self-indulgence. And yet, I love how Jesus calls out both. Whether that you have that religious community, that ultra right side, maybe that ultra like do what we say or else, and then you have this maybe more liberal side, the self-indulgent side, and he's like, listen, both, both of you. It spreads rapidly. You both be aware of this. And I love that there's like this third option the Bible always offers us. There's always this third option within Jesus. It, it, it's, it's a relationship option. It's this option of, you know what, I can actually enjoy him it's not about self-indulgence. It's about the denial of self and the enjoyment of Jesus. It's not about self-righteousness. It's about his righteousness. I mean, it kind of denies both. Self-righteous, self-indulgence. It says, just enjoy Jesus. 
And, and Jesus is saying, just be aware of this. It spreads and it spreads fast. Maybe this, I want to do what I want. Don't tell me what to do. That spreads fast. This arrogance of I don't need God. I can do things on my own. How dare anyone tell me what to believe or do? It spreads fast. It takes over. It's unseen. It will corrupt. It'll suck the, even the sweetness out of your life. And we said whether it's Pharisees or whether it's, it's Herod. And Jesus like, beware. And we see that this kind of bread corrupts. And then I love, I love the disciples' response in verse 16. Let's read it. Now we're going to see number three. We're going to see uh, bread isn't the point. Verse 16, and they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> but Jesus being aware of it said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? He's, he's really quoting from Isaiah 35. And he says in verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And I just love this interaction. Jesus is like, I love this, like a class to like, I don't know. They're like, how many baskets did you take up? They're like, 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you don't understand? If you're ever feeling like bad about yourself, just read about the disciples. All right, it always lifts me up. Um, it's true though, you read this interaction, it's just hilarious. It's like, oh my gosh, Jesus to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod because we forgot the bread. He's like, oh, they still don't get it. They still don't get it, right? After all of this, he's like, how do you have eyes, but you just don't see? You have ears, but you never hear. Some of you married people might feel that way. Sometimes, like, I know you see the dirty laundry. I'm sorry, babe. Um, but like, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. Like, what is up with this? And if you notice, he, he points out and like really kind of calls out five things. Uh, just I'll throw it up here for you. Um, he says, you don't understand. You have a hard heart. You're blind. You're deaf, and you forget. You don't understand. You have a hard heart, you're blind, you're deaf, and you forget. And really this describes mu much of even Christians, much of the world, that when it comes to God or the things of God, when it comes to Jesus, the ways of Jesus, following Jesus, knowing Jesus, many of us don't understand, or we hear it and we have a hard heart, we don't want to receive it, we're blind to it. I don't want to see it, I don't, I don't want to see it, don't tell me, you don't want to hear it, you're deaf to it, I don't want to know, and you just, or you just forget. Or we know all these things and our heart is open, but we just constantly forget. And Jesus says these things to them. That's what he, what he picks up on. He says, how is it they don't understand? And it's like, again, understand what? How is it they don't understand who I am and what I'm saying? I'm offering you a different bread. Beware of the bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, of Herod. This will bo they'll both kill you and suck the life out of you, but I'm offering you something different. I told you this back in chapter 6. You still didn't understand then. You don't understand now. How? How is it? And I just, I laugh because I, I read that and I go, Jesus, I know that's me. I know there's so many times in my life, he's like, Josiah, you still don't get it. I'm like, I don't. Like, I know, I know, I have to agree with God on this, that he shows me the same truth time and time again, but does my heart submit to it? Like, do I give myself over to it and say, yes, this is good. I still don't get it. And here's, here's what's interesting. Those who study Mark will actually say Mark 8 is like the dividing point. Like Mark 8 is really Jesus showing what he's done and now from Mark 8 and on, it's going to be who he is. Because it's really interesting. They're, like, they're asking this. He's like, do you not understand? Now, we're going to read this next week, and I can't wait for next week because there's so much just good stuff in next week's text. But I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. Peter, in Mark 8, 29, what does he say? He goes, you're the Christ. Here's what's happened. He, he, he understands after this. <laughs> it takes him a little while after everything he's seen. And he's going to see some more things happen even. But he goes, oh my gosh. You are the Christ. Who do men say that I am? Who do you, but who do you say that I am? Peter's like, I know, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And he's like, yes. Like Peter's starting to finally get it in Mark 8, 29. And this is kind of when the, the book shifts. They still didn't get it. And I'm so thankful. There's a verse in 2 Peter 3, 9. It's like, God is not impatient, but is long-suffering towards us. I'm so thankful for that. 
I'm so thankful God is patient with me and is long-suffering and willing to be like, oh, you don't get it, okay, I'm going to keep working with you. I'm so thankful for that. And we see this shift happening. You know, every time, and I, I want to end with this thought because I just thought it was fascinating. Every time the Bible mentions yeast or leaven, it's used in reference to sin. It's always used in a negative except once. Yeast and leaven is always used in a negative except once. We'll throw the verse up. It's Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 33. Jesus gave them a parable. And this is so different, so unique. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And I want to spend some time thinking about this. Now, I want to like write more about this later because I think this is so interesting. Leaven is compared to sin all the time. Sin's unseen. It spreads rapidly. But I love how Jesus goes, the kingdom of heaven's also like leaven. It's unseen and it's going to spread rapidly. If you've ever been around just a group of people who like, and this is maybe how a lot of us got drawn into Jesus or into the church, like you're around people who actually, they actually believe the Bible. They actually believe what God says. They actually pray. They, they actually repent of their sins. They actually forgive others. They actually give. They're actually, and you, you start to see, and go, oh my gosh, this person really, it's not religious. They believe this. Like they're all in. And you're like, yeah. And when you're around that, that spreads and it spreads rapidly. Even though sin can spread really fast. Sin can spread really fast in a person's life individually. It can spread fast in the church, but you know what? So can the leaven of the kingdom of God. That can also spread really fast. That can also, also infect a lot of people where it's like, wow, they really believe this. They really believe Jesus is Lord. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. That he is the Lord, the God, the creator of the universe. That they're submitting their will to his will. They really believe this. Like, yeah. And you go, I want in. Like, yeah. And you see, sometimes you also see this, the kingdom of God spreads just as fast or really faster. And I'm so thankful for that. It's not always like, a sin spreads fast, watch out, it's unseen. We also have another unseen kingdom that spreads really fast. And that's the kingdom of God. Amen? Listen, I just want to close with that, spend a little bit of time in worship and prayer. I'm going to come up here and share a little bit more about just what's happening in the next few months. Um, so let's just do that. Let's close our eyes and pray, and we'll just worship one last time. Father, we just thank you again that the kingdom of God spreads faster. God, we thank you that there is the, the leaven of the Pharisees, there's the leaven of Herod, and there's the leaven of the kingdom. And Jesus, thank you for that. Lord, we ask that we would not be those who, who are self-righteous and not be those who just self-indulge, but that we'd be those who just seek first your righteousness. That God would be seeking first you and your kingdom. So Lord, we ask, God, we do we just do ask, we do pray. This is not just, we don't want this to be in vain. Lord, we ask that the kingdom of God would spread rapidly in South Florida that many people, Jesus, would submit and surrender their will to your will. That, Jesus, we'd see your kingdom come, we'd see your will be done, that we'd see it grow. That, God, we, we know we're, we're quick to, to blow it, but we're also, Lord, we want to be quick to repent and look to you and to say, Jesus, we're thankful. We're thankful that we're told to seek your righteousness, not ours. And so, God, please be in this place. Let us be a culture of grace. Let us be a culture of love. Let us be a kingdom church here, Jesus. Lord, help us to understand. Forgive me for being like the disciples so often where I forget or I just don't get it. Lord, help us to, to get it. Help us to see, Jesus, that you offer us something that will satisfy us like no one or nothing else. Lord, let our hearts be satisfied in you and your wonderful name, Jesus. And amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship.